KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, what the kidnappings in Haiti reveal about politics there. Who really runs Haiti? The government or the gangs? The kidnapping suggests it's the gangs, and the leader of the gang that kidnapped 16 Americans has openly expressed political ambitions. Amy Willens will explain. Plus, John Coltrane. Of course, he was the tenor player who started out with Miles Davis in the 50s, and then in the mid-60s set out to pursue music as a quest for spiritual enlightenment. His classic work was A Love Supreme, a single piece 33 minutes long. It became the most popular record of his career. Now, a live performance from 1965 has been discovered and released, and Coltrane people are calling it nothing short of a revelation. Adam Schatz will comment. But first, today's political update. For that, we turn once again to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Always good to be here. Well, this looks like one of the most decisive weeks of Biden's presidency. Yesterday, the Democrats said they finally had a deal with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to move their reconciliation bill to a vote, something like $1.5 trillion to address climate change, universal pre-kindergarten, Medicare expansion, federal support for child care and home care. Uh, but today, uh, we're speaking Wednesday afternoon. That's become a little uncertain. Yesterday, they were going to pay for the bill with a billionaire's tax, but that's not so clear anymore. Today, Bernie Sanders chair of the Senate uh, Budget Committee, was quoted in the New York Times saying, every sensible revenue option seems to be destroyed. But then after that, the Washington Post quoted Chuck Schumer saying, we are hopeful that we can come to a framework agreement by the end of the day, Wednesday, he's talking about. We're speaking sort of at the end of the day for Congress, almost the end of the day on Wednesday. Where do we stand at this hour on, on the decisive week in Biden's presidency? I think on shaky ground. A, a lot of what the leaders, the Biden administration, uh, Chuck Schumer in the Senate and Nancy Pelosi in the House, have been saying has been exhortation in the guise of reporting on the status of, of affairs. And I'm not convinced that it's still anything more than exhortation. Now that uh, Joe Manchin has declared his solidarity with billionaires rather than, let us say, the seniors Bernie Sanders would like us to declare our solidarity with, or the people who should be covered by Medicaid uh, but aren't, as uh, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock would like us to be uh, declare our solidarity with, or uh, people who uh, have to live on a becoming unlivable planet that a lot of folks would like us to declare our solidarity with. We ain't there yet. And it seems to me this kind of a perfect combination of Manchin's unwillingness to spend and cinema's unwillingness to tax, which which puts us in a box. And it's not it's not clear to me how we uh, we persuade them to be at, interested in anything other than their own rather narrow self-interests. And it's not clear to me that unless there's actual language that they uh, agree to and vote on, that House progressives will or should go ahead and vote for the infrastructure bill. So in a certain sense, I think I may have said that last week or the week before or the week before that or the week before that, (laughs) but I will keep on saying it until the deed is done. The problem here, of course, is that Biden and the Democrats have the ambitions to put together the most far-reaching social programs since FDR or since LBJ, but FDR and LBJ had much bigger congressional majorities. I looked this up. FDR had a majority in the Senate after 1936 of 59 to 36, in the House 313 to 117 with five seats held by Minnesota's Farmer Labor Party. LBJ controlled the Senate 68 to 32 and the House 295 to 140. 
you know, Biden's majority in the House is a handful. In the Senate, it's it's tied. So that gives Joe Manchin uh, alone the power to to uh, stop things. What he said about about the billionaires tax was, quote, I don't like the connotation that we're targeting different people. Close quote. I mean, it's <laughs> grammatically we could parse that. Yeah. Uh, he he did explain though that billionaires quote contributed to society and create a lot of jobs, invest a lot of money, and give a lot to philanthropic pursuits. Close quote. This is we've heard this before. Usually not from progressive Democrats. No, and in fact, since you use the word progressive. If you uh, take seriously what Joe Manchin said, we shouldn't have progressive taxation, which in fact he has voted for in the past. Uh, and like I said, his solidarity with billionaires seems to eclipse the rest of the Senate delegation's solidarity with Americans in a good deal more need than the billionaires. Not to mention, it's hard to uh, establish what exactly Sam Walton's kids, for instance, have contributed to, you know, the uh, general happiness of the public at large. Of course, Joe Manchin saying, I don't like this is not the same as saying, I will destroy the Biden presidency and the Democrats' chances of accomplishing anything for the next decade by voting against this bill. I mean, maybe I'm being too optimistic here, but people do vote for bills they don't like all the time. Yeah, they do. And it is the case that in some previous Democratic legislation, the role has been held open while persuading uh, Joe Manchin over time to vote for something he wasn't really uh, thrilled about. So there is that possibility. And, you know, I would like the Democrats to roll that dice and maybe, you know, include things like giving Medicare the power to negotiate drug prices and and things like that. And if uh, the, the, you know, the cinema and uh, three members of the House want to vote against that, let them vote against that and, and uh, have the consequences. And they can always revote uh, and change the bill. But I have to say, Manchin objects uh, to expanding Medicare until its finances are secured. Cinema objects to the price negotiations, which supposedly would have the effect of uh, causing Medicare to spend $700 billion less on uh, covering drug purchases. So, you know, combined, they are the classic double whammy negation of doing anything about Medicare. And of course, our biggest worry about cinema and mansion is that they are making it harder for the Democrats to to make progress in the 2022 midterms, which are coming up in less than a year, uh, unless we've said this every week, unless the Democrats have striking achievements in Congress that they can take to the public, they are going to lose their major their tenuous hold on the majorities. And that will probably be true for the rest of the decade. And this is not the first time something like this has happened to the Democrats. Something like this happened with Obama. Right. In his first two years as president, Obama spent months and months and months negotiating with Republicans and a few then there were a few obstinate Democrats uh, then, too, over the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Senate Democrat who chaired the Senate Finance Committee, uh, Max Baucus, and the Democrat in name only, much like, you know, we should have a dino as well. The Republicans have rhino. <laughs> Uh, it's clear that uh, Manchin and Cinema are dinos. Uh, and the dino of that time was uh, Joe Lieberman of Connecticut. All, both of Baucus and Lieberman opposed the public option in the Affordable Care Act, and it ended up falling off. But I think it, it had the cumulative effect of providing uh, an image of Barack Obama as opposed to the, you know, the historic breakthrough, brilliant, charismatic new leader of the country to a guy who was just, you know, stuck and couldn't command Washington business as usual. And uh, that was not by any means the only reason the Democrats got shellacked in the first midterm of Obama's presidency, 2010. I mean, there was also the Tea Party and the racism uh, backlash against, uh, against Obama, but it was a reason. And I, my, my fear is that Biden is going through a repetition 
of what Obama went through. He seems not to be in command. He seems to be, uh, and the Democratic Party seems to be at the mercy of uh, two flaming narcissists. And, uh, and, and here we are. And I think that bodes ill for the Democrats in 2022 and might even bode ill for Terry McAuliffe in Virginia next Tuesday, whose gubernatorial campaign, we'll, we'll find out if he wins or loses uh, next Tuesday. And maybe the Democrats can reverse this. I think they can reverse it to some degree by finally passing some good stuff. But, you know, the damage to the image of a Democrat president has historically not worked to the Democrats' favor in the subsequent election. And I fear that some of that will be uh, what the party has to endure next year. You mentioned Joe Lieberman, the senator from Connecticut, who was the nemesis of Obama and Obamacare. There's a footnote to Joe Lieberman's history, which is that he provided the occasion for the first appearance of Kirsten Cinema on the political stage. Joe Lieberman went to Arizona and was confronted by a protest led by a young Green Party leader named Kirsten Cinema who said, what you are doing is serving the interests of the status quo, the corporations, the wealthy, laid out the whole progressive case at that time. So she searched her beginning in politics was as a Green Party antagonist attacking uh, Joe Lieberman. So she certainly knows what this debate is about. Yes, well, she's gone from attacking Joe Lieberman to becoming Joe Lieberman. <laughs> And as far as she's concerned, and there's uh, some stories out today that get into this, you know, uh, what she's about is promoting the uh, interests of Christian cinema. Let me just say, recall yeah. that last week you, you uh, were undecided about Kirsten cinema, whether she was, quote, a narcissistic sociopath or a sociopathic narcissist. I, I wonder if you've made any progress in resolving this dilemma. I haven't. This is still as much up in the air as the whole Democratic Reconciliation Bill. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Yeah, and let's hope we don't have to just rerun this show next week if <laughs> things are still in a mess. same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We need to talk about Haiti after the kidnapping of 16 American citizens there. For that, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's been writing about Haiti for a long time, most recently in the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And for the Washington Post, the LA Times, and the New York Times, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and the former Jerusalem bureau chief of The New Yorker magazine. And she is a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. She teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. We reached her today at home in L.A. Hi, Amy. Hi, John. Well, I always open our Haiti segments with a reminder about why we care, not just because of the misery and suffering of the Haitians, but because of Haiti's unique history. Haiti had the first successful slave revolution and established the first black republic in the world. Which brings us to this week's news. We're speaking here on Monday night, more than a week after the uh, kidnappings of October 16th. 16 Americans plus one Canadian, including several children, all part of Christian Aid Ministries, a Mennonite group from Ohio. I read in the New York Times uh, today that Port-au-Prince has become the world's kidnapping capital. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think it's true right now. Definitely. I think in a situation where the government is not only not patrolling or paying attention to the rule of law, where the government is not necessarily in charge of the police, and if they are, they're doing a bad job, where the government is participating to various degrees with the gangs that are committing these kidnappings, where no one is being prosecuted, no one arrested, where they can barely find the right people to think about in the assassination of a president, 
Yeah, it's it's a lawless place right now. That's why I'm reporting to you from uh, beautiful Los Angeles and not from Haiti, where I would normally be. I, even I now have finally been a little bit scared off. I read there have been at least 628 kidnappings in the first nine months of 2021. Uh, and who gets kidnapped Well, let me first say 628 kidnappings in the first half of 2021. Well, the president was killed during that time. And that has opened up a power vacuum where anything goes. So that's one reason that there are so many. But there have been a lot uh, over the past 10 years since the earthquake of 2010. And even before that, under the rule of the uh, UN peacekeepers, uh, which were a force in Haiti called MINUSTA, and a lot of those people came from countries where there was kidnapping and sort of schooled the Haitians in how to do it right. You know, So the question who gets kidnapped is a very good one. Who gets kidnapped in Haiti are people who don't merit headlines in the American mainstream media. First of all, just everyday average Haitians get kidnapped. School children, nurses, uh, physicians, assistants, um, anyone who might be seen to have a little bit more money than the average Haitian or who is known to have a relative in the United States or who went to a professional school at some point in their lives. Anyone who might have some money in pocket or relatives with money in pocket to pay ransoms. So that's anyone. That can be a, a, a Chabon de Bois seller. That's a market woman who sells uh, charcoal. And then, of course, Haiti's dwindling middle class, who are actually middle class, like pediatricians, lawyers, etc., also are targets because they actually have some money. They actually have family in the U.S. or Canada who really have some bank accounts, and they, too, are victims of this. So essentially, the gangs who are kidnapping are attacking those classes of Haitians who are able to uh, provide Haiti with a future. And that, to me, is a really desperate moment. You wrote in The Nation that the kidnapping of the Americans is a kind of blowback. What do you mean? Well, I see it as a blowback for the failed American policy in Haiti over the past decade, at least. And of course, for many years before that, but it's been more refined as a failure in the past 10 years, during which uh, we've supported and enabled uh, elections that were really show elections of Michel Martelly and then of Jovenel Moïse, Michel Martelly's protege, both members of the same party, both uh, running extremely corrupt administrations, pillaging the Haitian treasury, as pathetic as that sounds, there's money there to be had. And they did it, and the people under them did it. Meanwhile, uh, running administrations of grotesque negligence of the state so that the Haitian people are essentially left to their own devices. Meanwhile, these gangs are being fomented for political reasons, for criminal reasons, and for um, protection of corruption. And they're, you know, they kidnap someone, no one is arrested. There's a massacre. No one is arrested. Even when government officials are known to have participated in arming a gang that commits a massacre in a marketplace of 70 people, no one's arrested. And, and the American government continues to support these two presidents and everything they do and assures uh, the State Department under Obama, under Trump, and now under Biden, that these are our best hope in Haiti. Well, it's a racist policy and it's bound to have some kind of blowback. And now you're seeing the blowback because the gangs are now so arrogant or something that they would dare to kidnap 16 American missionaries. I'm not saying that missionaries have a very pure record in Haiti. They don't. And this American missionary group does also not have a very pure record in Haiti. But still, again, it's very, very uh, arrogant on the part of this gang to kidnap Americans. You don't know what you're getting into when you do such a thing. What do you mean this group of Mennonite missionaries does not have a pure record? I'm not sure how many years ago it was, but one member of the Christian Aid Ministries and this was known to the um, administration of CAM, was abusing boys, Haitian boys, under his control for 15 years. 
<laughs> then I think Christian Aid Ministries uh, said, you know, you can't keep doing this. We're putting you back in the United States. He went back to Ohio. He continued his path of abuse of kids. This time they were kids from Ohio and he was caught and he was prosecuted. He's now in jail. And the whole story came out. Uh, I don't know if this was known even to the gang that did the kidnapping. I don't believe that they've even asserted anything about that. But it's important to recognize that it's a complicated relationship. I'm sure these people are all good, decent people, but and it's hideous to kidnap anyone at any time for any reason. Kidnapping is inexcusable. But I'm just saying there's a fraught relationship between yeah. missionaries and the Haitians that they deal with. We've talked about the kidnappings. We've talked about the corruption. Uh, we talked about President Moise being assassinated, but that was only one of many, many assassinations. Oh, yeah. That was the assassination that was noticed by the mainstream media in the U.S. He's a president. That's understandable. That's what you write about. But I do think that the assassination of the head of the Haitian Bar Association, Montferrier Dorval, was worth noticing in the American media. I think that the assassination of Antoinette Duclair, an outspoken, well-known, much beloved, absolutely adorable young woman who was an opponent of the government and of this corruption and of the lawlessness, her cold-blooded assassination, along with her friend, a journalist, a radio journalist who was working on an investigation of the corruption, Diego Charles, those were worth noting too, but they don't get noticed. So I think that's really sad. And I think the reason that it's a tragedy for Haiti that things like that don't get mentioned. And they might have been mentioned in an earlier era when we cared about human rights, but now they're not mentioned. And it's a tragedy because then suddenly the president is assassinated. No one knows why. No one understands what's happening there. And American policy doesn't get fixed because there's never any public awareness of what's going on. In your most recent article in The Nation on Haiti, you provide a list of 10 rules for being the president of Haiti. Please give us the list. I'm going to just read you that list. It's made a big splash in Haiti where it was translated into French. So here are the rules from the U.S. Embassy for being president of Haiti or just de facto prime minister, which is what we have now. Uh, maybe you, my listeners, would like this job. I think it sounds really good. Uh, one. Don't interfere with Haitian business people who are old friends of the American embassy, no matter what corruption they're into, customs, ports, energy, protection, banking, etc. They're our old friends. That's the American embassy speaking. Two, understand that you are president, but the business people run Haiti as they wish and as we wish. We support them even if they might plausibly have been involved in your death. This is number three. You may you too may steal and let your friends steal. You too may assassinate and let your friends assassinate. Massacre likewise. Please try to do it quietly. But frankly, as long as you obey rule number one, don't mess with the business people. We don't care. We will never stop you. We don't care if you have millions of dollars from unknown sources stowed away in cash in your house, as President Moise did when he was killed. Four. If you need gangs to run the country because you've destroyed all democratic institutions and all law enforcement through attrition, firings and corruption, okay, we don't really care what they do. However, see rule number nine. We will get to rule nine in just one moment. Five, do not worry about the Haitian people. They are long suffering, philosophical, fatalistic, resilient. That's our favorite word. They are proud and uncomplaining and they know how to make a buck a day in a failed economy. They can put up with your neglect. If they die of COVID because you wouldn't and couldn't provide vaccinations, don't worry. Also, they won't starve. And if they do, we don't care. Six, but don't let them leave the country. We'll help you stop them. If you let them leave, we will send them back. The Americans have now sent back at about 10,000 Haitians recently. Seven, never think we respect you or will protect you. We don't, we won't. But do what we say or you're out. You're not independent. You are not the leader of a sovereign nation. Don't kid yourself. Mm. Eight, remember only some black lives matter, black American lives. Nine, thus, never let the gangs kidnap white Americans, never. So that's the rule you have to remember when you permit the gangs to run the country. 
Never let them kidnap white Americans. And number 10 is the most important. Never admit these are our rules for you. Amy Willis's 10 rules for governing uh, Haiti. But number nine has been violated. It's been violated boldly. It's been gotten into the headlines in the United States. Supposedly and it's unprecedented in its scope. It's a gigantic kidnapping. They took a bus full of these missionaries with children. And the guy whose name is Wilson Joseph, who runs the gang 400 Mawazo, said he's going to blow the heads off these people, which I highly doubt. But you don't know. He could be a complete pathological killer. I don't know. I don't know much about him. Why? Why would a gang do this? They had a perfectly good system of ransom before this, and now they could be in trouble, maybe. Well, it's a high-value target. So you're a kidnapper. You say, oh, I can kidnap a lady from the market who sells charcoal, or I can kidnap a bus full of Americans. <laughs> But, of course, the lady from the market has no resources to respond against you. There's nothing she can do. Whereas 16 Americans, you're, you're asking for it. You might not get it. And that may be one of the considerations of these gangs. This gang may be saying the American government supports the gangs. They don't support the Haitian people. They won't support these missionaries. They're going to let us do what we want to do. We're going to ask for money and they're going to give us the money because they don't want to see these people harmed um, publicly, it wouldn't be good for the Biden administration. So that's one thing they might say. But another thing they might say is, hmm, now we have 16 American hostages and we're not really a gang. We're run by someone. And that has been the problem with the gangs all along is they're run by various nefarious and shadowy figures in Haitian culture and the Haitian economy. We can't know exactly who's running whom. But they could be saying, OK, we have 16 hostages rather than kidnap victims, and we're going to bargain. We're going to say, don't change the government. We want Ariel Henry to be in power, maybe. Or they're going to say, change the government. We want so-and-so to be president, maybe. We don't know really what their motivation is. But I will say that if he blows the heads off these missionaries, he's very likely to be killed himself. So it, it's a suicidal transaction for him to kill them. He still could. He still could. He still could, yes. And that's very scary. Now, one of the most important parts of your reporting on Haiti for the nation is you're writing about the civil society groups who are seeking a democratic Haiti, especially one called the Commission for a Haitian Solution. Tell us about them and where they stand right now. Commission is a group a large umbrella group that's been working. They started their work about three or four months before President Moise was assassinated. So they didn't leap into a power void and say, we want to take control now. They were already working on this as committed, I think, patriots. And they, they reached out to all sectors of society. So very much uh, reached out to grassroots people. These are educators and human rights people who began this group. They're very um, well-educated Haitians. So they're not your average Haitian and they're not your average militant Haitian or activist Haitian, but they reached out to all of those people, students, labor, teachers, professors, shantytown organizers, as well as the private sector, whomever they could grab. There aren't that many with a great consciousness, but there are some, especially among the younger generation. And they reached out to all sorts of uh, NGO workers and to doctors and professionals of all kinds. Let's not miss farmers all through the countryside. So that's a very important part of Haitian society, a very needy part. So it's a very large group with about 800 signatories who are not just individual signatories. They, are, they represent groups. And these people have all come together and really worked on documents. There's something called the Montana Accord, which lays out a blueprint or a map, you could call it, um, of how to proceed with a, uh, an interim government toward elections, but not over speedily and not the way the U.S. has wanted to do it every time they deal with a difficult situation in Haiti. Let me, let me just inject here. It's called the Montana document, not because of the American state of Montana. <laughs> right. It's called that because of the uh, hotel where it was uh, hammered out in the end and signed. 
the Montana Accord. Yes. So Biden is doing something right now. He just sent a plane full of FBI officers to work uh, with the Haitian government, whatever that means right now, on hostage negotiations. This is actually the second FBI team that Biden has sent there. The first went to work investigating the killing of President Moise. How's that first investigation going? Not so great. Uh, they don't really know who did it. That is the exact killing with the gun. They don't really know how they got control of the house to get in. They don't really know much about the Colombian mercenaries who were on the scene either at the time of the killing or very soon after the killing. They've arrested now another person, another Colombian. We're not really sure what his relationship is to the killing. They've mentioned several people as the masterminds, none of whom has anything to do with the other. So uh, I'm not saying just the FBI has done this, but this has been the Haitian government's comportment as it goes forward with FBI team to figure this out. So basically, after so that's July, that's four months ago. No solution in a very corrupt place. It's not that easy to know who did what. Last question. Who's really in charge in Haiti today? Is it the de facto prime minister, Ariel Henry? Or, or is it the gangs? I think it's the gangs. Someone said today, I saw on WhatsApp, someone said, Ariel Henry, are you there in the cockpit? <laughs> no, he's not there in the cockpit. The other day, he went to lay a wreath on the um, memorial to Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Jean-Jacques Dessalines was a great revolutionary leader and an emperor of early Haiti, very important figure in the minds of Haitians and everyone who knows about this revolution that was concluded by Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Um, and Ariel Henry, the de facto prime minister of Haiti, uh, basically given uh, a rubber stamp and a green light by the American embassy, went to lay his wreath. <laughs> Before this, it is alleged by a very respectable human rights person, he paid uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the gang that runs that area to be allowed to lay the wreath. He gets there with his 10 SUVs and the gang is there, money in pocket, shooting their guns in the air. And the president, oops, excuse me, the de facto prime minister jumps back into his SUV with all of his people because they're being shot at and they rush away. And then the head of the gang, Jimmy Cherizier, who's known as Barbecue, it's a colorful country. Yes, it is. Comes in a white suit with a bigger wreath than the de facto prime minister had, and he lays that on the memorial spot of Dessalines. He is Dessalines' follower. That's how he sees himself. And he will be, at one point, a contender for the presidency of Haiti, although he's a criminal. But we've seen that happen in our country. So, Amy Willens, reader at thenation.com. Amy, thanks so much for your report today. Thank you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about John Coltrane, the tenor player who started out with Miles Davis in the 50s, and then in the mid-60s set out to pursue music as a quest for spiritual enlightenment. His classic work was A Love Supreme, a single piece 33 minutes long. It became the most popular record of his career. Now, a live performance from 1965 has been discovered and released, and Coltrane people are calling it nothing short of a revelation. For comment, we turn to Adam Schatz. He's the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and former literary editor of The Nation. He also writes for the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, and The New York Review, where his piece on John Coltrane and the new recording of A Love Supreme appears online at nybooks.com. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam Schatz, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, John. John Coltrane's most popular recording before A Love Supreme 
his signature song was My Favorite Things. It's from The Sound of Music. It's a waltz. It's by Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's Middlebrow Broadway and then a Hollywood studio classic where Julie Andrews sang about whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles, and warm woolen mittens. How did John Coltrane turn this into his song? You know, Amiri Baraka uh, said that Coltrane was the first jazz musician of his time to break out of what he called the Tin Pan Alley Penitentiary. <laughs> Coltrane, who was a brilliant composer, you know, made a name for himself by taking this saccharine Tin Pan Alley song and turning it into a piece that sounded like, I don't know, some whirling dervish. Uh, you know, first of all, what instrument does he play my favorite things on? He plays it on soprano. And he gives it this kind of wailing Eastern tinge. He'd been listening to a lot of Indian music, especially uh, Carnatic music. And he plays the piece over 14 minutes. It's, it's uh, rather austere, it's almost minimalist. He imbues my favorite things with this dark sense of, of enchantment, which is as far from the original as you can imagine. In a sense, Coltrane's My Favorite Things is not the Rodgers and Hammerstein, my favorite things. And playing it on soprano saxophone instead of his instrument, the tenor, what's the significance of that? I think that the soprano in that performance has more of a kind of Eastern uh, sound uh, than the, the tenor saxophone might have. But Coltrane's tenor saxophone, of course, is most unusual. He has a sound that is almost free of vibrato until the end of his career. It's very dry, it's kind of gnarled. It's not the kind of smooth sound that some people seek. He has a sound that is very earnest. It's not a playful sound. This is not Sonny Rollins. This is not Sonny Rollins quoting from the American popular songbook. Coltrane didn't quote other people's songs. There's, some, there's, a, there's a kind of gravitas in Coltrane's playing, which is sui generis, I think. Well, Coltrane, became famous as part of the Miles Davis Quintet in the late uh, 50s, especially on Kind of Blue, 1959. Miles Davis was the angry black man who, you know, turned his back on uh, white audiences in live performances. That was not John Coltrane's persona. It was certainly not his life. Miles had a, a reputation, I think, somewhat um, unfair for being unfriendly to audiences because he turned his back. He actually did that because he wanted to hear himself better. It wasn't, um, I don't think it was an expression of insult towards his audience. But in any case, Coltrane had a very different attitude. He was so, he had such concentration on what he was performing that uh, he scarcely acknowledged the audience, but for, for very different reasons. Uh, he seemed to have no thoughts other than what he was doing with his horn. He was not a showman uh, in the least. He wasn't a defiant showman or an ingratiating showman. <laughs> he just played his saxophone and uh, he was said to even sleep with, with his instrument. He was practicing his instrument for up to eight or nine hours a day. I mean, this was a kind of uh, discipline that lends itself to legend and to myth-making, which is certainly the case uh, in Coltrane's life. Miles Davis was the embodiment of 1950s and 1960s cool. Uh, John Coltrane wasn't cool. He wasn't hip. He, he was a, a very purposeful, diligent, quiet man of the black middle class who had little interest in being part of any scene. By the early 1960s, when he became involved with the woman who became his second wife, uh, Alice McLeod, later Alice Coltrane, uh, they were living in uh, Dix Hills in Long Island in a leafy suburb. This was not the jazz life. He had known a bit of the jazz life, of course, early on during his 10-year uh, addiction to, to heroin and during uh, in a period of, of alcoholism. Um, and he wanted to get as far as he could from the jazz life as possible. And, and he did by absorption in his spiritual life. In that spiritual life, he, he was quoted as saying, I believe in all religions. Was he serious about that? What did it mean? He was. Uh, Coltrane was very uh, ecumenical in his approach to spirituality. I mean, he had been raised in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, his his uh, grandfather 
had been um, a, a legendary uh, preacher, very fiery, uh, courageously militant in his defense of, of Black rights. So he grew up in this ambiance of Southern militancy in North Carolina and uh, deep spiritual worship. But when he returned uh, to spiritual practice in 1957, which is the great year for him, the year of, uh, of his epiphany, he began to develop a very personal idiosyncratic form of spirituality, not attached to any one religious institution. It was a mix of Sufi Islam, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and still other uh, beliefs. He, he was generous. He was universalistic. He was a, a very much a man of peace. And he said that Every person, I think he said every man, but this is 1965 or so, has access to the spiritual truth. I think that was a very profound belief of his. And tell us how he wrote A Love Supreme. He wrote A Love Supreme in 1965 after a five-day retreat at his own home. He basically locked himself into a room and came out five days later announcing to Alice Coltrane that he had received, it was 1964, and shortly after receiving uh, this composition, he went into the studio and recorded it with the group that was known uh, as his classic quartet. Uh, his producer at Impulse Records, Bob Thiel, was not particularly keen on Coltrane performing a suite of original compositions. I think he probably wanted him to play a standard and to maybe play a few of his own compositions, but to mix it up, nothing too challenging. And Coltrane insisted, and by then he was, he was such a popular artist that he had the power to make his own choices and to make them stick. You write at the New York Review website, nybooks.com, that a love supreme conveys a sense of searching and striving with a world-weary melancholy and transcendental yearning. How does Coltrane do that? In A Love Supreme, uh, Coltrane builds something very complex on something that is very simple, this, this four-note motif that has become almost as recognizable as the defining motif of Beethoven's uh, Fifth Symphony. He takes this motif and we hear him play it uh, in every key of the saxophone, and then we hear Coltrane's voice overdubbed 19 times intoning a love supreme. And, and this you know, gives a kind of hypnotic uh, intensity to the opening melody uh, acknowledgement of, of the suite. Coltrane also has a way of creating this intense sense of beauty and then tearing it apart and, and he has to rebuild it again. You, you sense that that, that the, the achievement is always somewhat fragile. It's always at the risk of being torn apart or taken down. And so there is this kind of agonistic struggle that goes on in each of his improvisations that feels kind of existential. A Love Supreme was a studio album with my favorite things. He played it many, many different ways, improvised around. It seems like he didn't want to do that with A Love Supreme, is that right? That, that's correct. A Love Supreme was released in December 1964. And until recently, we were only aware of one performance, uh, one live performance, uh, which was uh, a performance at the Antique Jazz Festival uh, at Juan Le Pam in the summer of uh, 1965. It's a beautiful recording and stood alone and, and apart a very faithful reproduction, although a longer one, uh, of, of the original. And I think that this fed into a, a perception that Coltrane did not want to tamper with his masterpiece. The contrast with uh, My Favorite Things is quite stark. My Favorite Things was a piece that he reinvented hundreds of times. However, as it turns out, there is this other performance uh, of A Love Supreme, uh, which he performed live in Seattle in early October 1965 with the classic quartet, but also with a few other musicians. Now, the people who perform with him on this version, in addition to the drummer Elvin Jones, 
the pianist McCoy Tyner, the bassist Jimmy Garrison, the other three members of the classic quartet are the tenor saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders, who played with Coltrane until the end of his life from 1965 on, uh, Carlos Ward, a Panamanian alto saxophonist, and Raphael Garrett, uh, a bassist. So it's a septet recording of A Love Supreme. In the 60s, a lot of jazz people recorded works of militant protest music. Max Roach, Charles Mingus, Sonny Rollins, you know, the Freedom Now suite. Coltrane was considered the true black revolutionary of jazz at this point, but he wasn't really political. Is, is that a fair statement? I'm not sure that he wasn't political, but in a way he trans he, he transcended politics. He transcended, he was above the fray. He was a kind of um, a mystical and spiritual figure and viewed by other musicians, especially by black musicians, as a, as a prophet. John Coltrane was certainly no stranger to the civil rights struggle, and he expressed uh, admiration at one point for uh, Malcolm X. Uh, he attended one of his speeches. But on the whole, Coltrane didn't really get mixed up in politics and rarely acknowledged the political in a direct way in his song titles. However, Coltrane embodied a kind of a shift towards Africa and what was then called the third world in his music. He did that in terms of the kind of music that he was bringing into jazz, the use of drones, the use of certain kinds of repetition, the intense emphasis on percussion and polyrhythms. He was Africanizing jazz, taking it away from the jazz of Tin Pan Alley, for one thing. So the whole emo emotive thrust of the music pointed towards Africa and the third world. So did his titles, titles like Africa, Ogunde, India, Liberia. So the spiritual dimension of the music had, you might say, an implicit politics, if not an explicit radicalism. And what's more, Coltrane wrote probably the most important civil rights elegy of his time, a piece called Alabama in memory of those four black girls who were killed in the church bombing in Alabama. And Alabama is a short and absolutely harrowing uh, song. I believe that Alabama was used in Eyes on the Prize. And uh, it's, I think it's notable that Coltrane used that one word, Alabama, to signify the depth of the sorrow and suffering of his people in, in, in 1963 and that whole era. And it survives and I think retains a power that transcends that of some of the great civil rights pieces, which are wonderful, but which feel like time capsules. Alabama is eternal. In the last two years of his life, Coltrane recorded more than 10 new albums. What are those like? Those albums are, I think, some of the, the best work of, of his career. They were albums like Sonship and, and, and Transition. They are the albums that show Coltrane uh, moving beyond his modal work, moving beyond even uh, albums like A Love Supreme, um, exploring a greater freedom uh, in improvisation. Uh, emphasizing his relationship to Elvin Jones uh, even more with these extended uh, duets uh, between the two of them. They're not always the easiest uh, to listen to. They, they certainly are not background music, but I think they're some of the most exhilarating work that he recorded, and they're collectively uh, known as, quote-unquote, late Coltrane. In conclusion here, what makes the new live recording of A Love Supreme important to us today? For one thing, it's a fantastic album of live jazz. Okay, I think we have to underscore that this is, this is great music. And although Coltrane's a little muffled uh, in the mix, he sounds absolutely glorious. And it's just incredibly exciting 
to hear him play his masterpiece. But I think the other reason that this album is important to us is that it shows how Coltrane's conception of his masterpiece continued to evolve as his own music changed. And he was changing very rapidly. I don't think there's any group in, in music at that time that evolved as rapidly as the Coltrane Quartet other than the Beatles. I mean, you look at the difference between early Beatles albums and albums like Revolver or the White Album and Abbey Road. I mean, that's quite a journey. And Coltrane's journey uh, is just as dramatic in some ways, I would say more dramatic. In The Love Supreme, the studio version, Coltrane is having a conversation with his God. It's a very introspective album. It's the confession, the expression of an individual believer. This album is more like a church service. It's more like a group celebration. It's wild, it's incantatory, and it's filled with exotic ethnic percussion instruments that were to become very much the soundtrack of so many jazz albums in that period. So it looks back to the orchestral sound that he developed in albums like Africa Brass while pointing towards this future that he helped to create, but in which he couldn't fully participate because he died in 1967. So we're hearing Coltrane's past and the future of jazz in this album. Adam Schatz wrote about John Coltrane in the newly discovered live performance of A Love Supreme for the New York Review of Books website. You can read it online at nybooks.com. Adam, this was wonderful. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. USA.